G'day, uh, welcome to season five of Lunch Money. Uh, we're in our coming into our fifth year of being uh, the social media and uh, online home for special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. My name's Nick Samios. Uh, I am your Lunch Money host. Um, and welcome to anyone who is uh, watching us live, and welcome to our uh, our podcast listeners. Um, I guess we, we, we've come out of COVID and COVID's kind of old news to some extent now. And uh, during COVID and before COVID, there were some uh, new measures that were brought around to assist businesses to go through the restructuring process. Anyone that you speak to uh, about corporate restructuring, whether or not we're talking about small businesses or larger businesses, um, you know, when, when, you, when you see a business in distress and you wonder why... Uh, usually you often the case is you get to a business that's failed and you think if only they'd taken action earlier and you ask yourself why don't businesses take the action um, earlier in order to uh, assist a recovery instead of leading it too late and uh, I guess there's been a couple of reasons that you could say that 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 people leave things too late one is um, that the, the stigma of, of uh, going into insolvency and the other one uh, is the complexity so particularly when it comes to small businesses, complexity has been a real issue. So during COVID, uh, the federal government brought in a thing called small business restructuring, which was supposed to make the, um, the uh, process of restructuring a small business to help it survive, uh, survive and uh, recover from insolvency to make it less complex. And for larger businesses, uh, a few years ago now, um, in order to sort of deal with this issue of, uh, of the stigma of taking action too soon, uh, they brought in uh, Safe Harbour. Um, but look, I'm not the expert. I'm just uh, I'm just a financier who uh, gets these things across his desk. So uh, we've got two uh, two experts to to to, um, to speak with today, and I'm going to introduce them. We've got Blair Pleish, who is a restructuring partner at Hall Chadwick, uh, and we have Professor Jason Harris, who is a professor of law at Sydney University. So um, g'day, gents. G'day, Nick. G'day, Nick. Now, listen, I'll start off with my, my sort of usual uh, icebreaker question, and I'll start with, uh, with you, Blair, since you've been, uh, you've been with us before. Um, what, what's been keeping you busy these last couple of weeks? What's crossed your desk that's interesting that uh, I guess gives our, uh, our listeners a, a bit of a picture of what uh, the day in the life of Blair Pleash? Uh, like, like I suppose a lot of uh, professionals, you know, the... the uh, lead into Christmas does um, take a bit of momentum away and you've got to get your, uh, I guess, guess your uh, practice up and running again um, so people know who you are. But I suppose kind of kind of noticed that, the, and it was leading into the end of last year, that there was a, there was a sort of an uptick in, in restructuring and insolvency work, which is probably down to the um, our prevailing economic conditions. And uh, cer certainly, um, some uh, some specific industries, like uh, I suppose, for instance, in the resources industry, there's been a few. Uh, there's been particularly in um, uh, you know green energy sort sort of uh, uh, resources. There's been sort of price reductions in that space, commodity prices reductions, and that's obviously led to a few. Um, few interesting uh, uh, sort of assignments. 
And it's it still looks like there's an element of uh, the construction industry can and is continuing to have a continuing to have a bit of a difficult time of it. Yeah, I've just thrown up a slide there of uh, year-to-date insolvencies. I mean, construction's at the top of the pile there, and uh, that's the one that makes the news, particularly in uh, in, in the home-building sector because, uh, you know, it causes uh, causes a lot of pain and grief. It's interesting you talk about um, the, the economy because all the indicators are the economy's going great. You know, interest rates are coming down. Um, there's a whole lot of, of, uh, of signals you know, property prices seem to be holding up, but of course, retail sales were pretty rubbish. Are you see, so you're seeing a bit of construction. You're seeing some of the, the green energy type stuff. And yeah. uh, what about what about NDIS? Uh, that that probably hasn't. Uh, I guess that hasn't that hasn't sort of uh, reared its head reared its head on the radar yet. Um, having said that, in you know those service there's going to be service providers in that space which. At any stage of the cycle, you'll find them. You'll find some of them, um, uh, yeah, being in, in a distressed condition. What about you? Haven't had any uh, vape shops across your desk yet? Uh, no, I have not had that. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, you know, uh, I was, there was I was reading an article that uh, the uh, tattoo the tattoo parlors are go, uh, the tattoos are going off um, offline as well. Because of cost of living pressures, so I'm, I'm looking forward to a few of them as well. Well, as uh, as the father of three kids who are all tattoo age, uh, I'm very pleased to hear that. Um, so, so very good. And uh, Jason, you're um, I guess you're coming into a, a new year as far as uh, as far as students goes, but you are obviously uh, also doing a lot of uh, um, I guess research and uh, one way or another into insolvency. What what's sort of keeping you busy of late? Yeah, so January is the period when uh, generally we're doing research or going to conferences. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've been spending my time getting right into the uh, Indian insolvency and bankruptcy code because I'm doing a bit of comparative research, looking at how India deals with insolvency, uh, particularly insolvency disputes. They have a, a specialist court system over there that just deals with insolvency matters, and they've got some really interesting reforms on a small business insolvency. So. I've been reading all about that and writing some some papers on that and I'm about to give some presentations on that over the next few weeks. So yeah, that's been keeping me busy, but it's uh, it's it's wonderful here on campus at the moment because we're about to start uh, O week. So we've got all the tents and things going up and we'll soon the campus will be filled with about 60,000 students in about a week and a half. So it's a it's a nice time of year on campus. Fantastic. Yeah, my my daughter's starting there this year, so um she's uh, uh, she's studying ag science, but I think there's a little bit of uh, echoes and stuff. I'm not sure if she's doing any law, but uh, so so okay. Look, um, I've I've seen a, a couple of deals lately where there's uh, either SBRs being talked about or small business restructurings that have recently taken place. I, I had a deal across my desk uh, where a small business restructuring took place about uh, about a year ago, and apart from the fact that uh, it was it was sort of the finance for that was poorly structured hence it's on my desk now uh, it seems to have been otherwise successful um, but a lot of our audience are commercial finance brokers so whilst, obviously whilst we have people from the insolvency profession uh, that tune in um, I guess it's it's people commercial finance brokers uh, sort of constitute a large section of our audience and they're not you know, they're not legal professionals. They're not uh, people insolvency people that are dealing with these things day to day. So, 
and, and for us, you know, sitting here, obviously, small business restructuring has been around for a couple of years. But Blair, I mean, how do you explain what small business restructuring is to, uh, to someone who might be a business advisor but isn't a legal expert? Well, I probably, probably the best way of describing it is sort of VA light is is because you know most people are familiar with what VAs are. It's some voluntary administrations. Yep. Yeah, it's sort of VA light. It was so it's it's intended for SMEs, um, you know, and there's there's criteria where they have to. Um, it's quite strict criteria, like liabilities have to be less than a million dollars. Have uh, due and payable employee entitlements paid up, and they have to have their tax lodgements to date, up to date. So that that's gonna that's gonna knock out a lot of you know, distressed SMEs to begin with. Um, and I suppose the other, and the intention is that it's supposed to carve a lot of costs associated with voluntary administration. So it's an accessible process for SMEs, and probably the centerpiece and the big distinction between that. And um, or between SBRs and VAs, is it's actually a debtor in possession model. The you know the external practitioner who's now you know some called a small business restructuring professional, he doesn't actually take control of the business during the uh, um, negotiation or restructuring phase sort of business, whereas he would in in a VA. And that's that's sort of uh, where the big distinction is lies. It's a it's a for what they call a debtor in possession model. Yeah, so obviously anyone familiar with uh, corporate restructuring in the USA would know that the, the debtor in possession model is, 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 I guess, rather than the creditors uh, or, or for that matter, an administrator, an accountant being in charge of the business when it goes into administration, the directors are still in control. That, that's, that's basically right, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, they can't, so, they can't sell a business or anything like that. They can only incur debts in the ordinary course of business sort of sort of thing. Okay, and, and as someone who's bread and butter, obviously, is, is doing this, are you, do you think that, are you finding uh, in the field that the fact that, you know, there's lower, there's, it's a lower cost process, and I guess sub-question is, is it a lower cost process? It's a lower cost process and the directors still retain control. Um, you know, is that is that a big a big draw card for for people taking action earlier? Well, whether it's whether it's whether it's a draw card for them taking action earlier, it's probably a draw card for them to say compromise for want uh, compromise ATO debt is probably one draw card of it, um, and the other draw card of it is it does seem to have. Um, at least from the statistics that are available, it does seem to have, um, uh, because of the cost, the cost is seems to be lower than VAs in 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 practice. And that seems to uh, be translate translating in practice, and that that's because you know some of these SMEs they wouldn't really be a, be a, they wouldn't be candidates for a VA because it would be too expensive, but uh, the SMEs do seem to be accessing this um, this uh, mechanism because it seems to the cost seems seems to be attractive and that seems to uh, well that was one of the intentions behind the, behind the process so to that extent it's been a success okay 
And Jason, how do you, uh, how would you sort of, uh, in a nutshell, explain this process to a, a first year student? And what are you, what are you seeing in terms of uh, um, the, you know, in terms of the efficiency of, of, of small businesses taking this up? And you know, is it saving companies from going out of business altogether? Is it, is it actually uh, meeting its its mandate? Yeah, I think it is meeting its mandate. And you know, I was one of the early critics of this regime. I, I had great hopes for it. And when it was introduced in a pretty uh, hurried fashion, uh, we only had a couple of months to comment on the, the draft laws before they were introduced. Uh, I thought it was going to be a white elephant. And I wrote a paper explaining why I thought that. So I've been pleased that I've been proven wrong on that, that it, it, it is being taken up and it's being increasingly used each quarter. We're seeing more and more appointments. Now it's still well off where voluntary administration was when that was introduced back in, in 1993. So it's not as popular as other types of insolvency, but there's clearly a need in this, the smaller end of the market, the SME market uh, for this type of procedure. So I'd say, yes, it, it would be a success. But I think it could be still improved. You know, we, we've had a, a parliamentary inquiry into corporate insolvency law last year, and there were various reforms recommended as part of that. One of which is this uh, maximum million dollar uh, liabilities uh, ceiling, which we currently have. Um, as to how I would explain it to a student, I, I always say to students in, in my insolvency course, you know, focus on where's the problem in this business or what are the problems in the business? And for many of these smaller businesses, the business people don't have the right information systems in place. So they get behind on some of their bills, particularly tax bills. Maybe they, they're not paying their taxes on time because that's basically providing the cash flow for the business. And so this is a regime which allows you to compromise your tax debt. Now, I do think there's, there's a much broader question here in terms of policy. Should we have a procedure that, that basically requires you to go through this formal process incur potentially tens of thousands of dollars in costs just to do a deal with the tax office? Why isn't there a more efficient economical process to do a deal with the tax office? On the other side, we might say the tax office has got something like 36 billion in small business outstanding debt. Uh, is it appropriate for the tax office to just be cutting deals, you know, seemingly left, right and centre on these things? Now, what we do know is the tax office is being very open and transparent, which is fantastic. They're going out and giving roadshows around the country, talking to insolvency practitioners, talking to accountants, explaining what things they look for to give approval. Uh, and they are certainly uh, director loans. They want to see director loan accounts coming way down and they want to see the uh, tax compliance going up. So a better history of tax compliance, not just ignoring the tax office for years and then thinking you can do an SBR. But if you can tick those boxes and you can, you know, offer maybe 25 cents in the dollar, uh, I think the tax office is probably going to allow it to go through. Uh, so, yeah. you know, that, that's a good outcome. It is being used. It, it does seem to be helping businesses. Um, anecdotally, I'm hearing that a, a lot of the uh, directors in these cases are actually paying off their non-tax debts, and then they're just using this procedure purely for tax debts. And uh, an ASIC study that we had uh, released last year seemed to suggest that as well in terms of very large proportions of the companies using this procedure, tax is the only unsecured creditor. Uh, so that suggests they're dealing with the other tax debts, uh, other debts first. Right. I mean, that raises a bunch of interesting questions. Uh, but but I guess just to sort of keep it in the realm of the commercial finance broker without sort of getting into the into the weeds too much on the legal side of things. Yes, I mean, the ones I'm seeing, yeah, a lot of uh, 
and, and I don't see these, I guess Blair can, can speak to it better, but it does seem to be that the ATO is the primary, uh, the primary target for these things. Um, you mentioned $36 billion. Yeah, I've got written on my whiteboard here $30 billion. Uh, some people say $60 billion. It's a bit hard to, to understand exactly what that number is. Um, but it's a big number, whatever it is. And there, there's a lot of businesses that I've seen that have got 3 million, 4 million, 5 million who obviously don't qualify for, uh, for SBR. Um, so, uh, yeah. I, I, and the other thing that I'm seeing is people uh, seeking to refinance, for example, their superannuation liabilities. Uh, they're obviously scurrying around getting their... Um, uh, their reporting up to date, their lodgements up to date, and that sort of thing. Um, anything further to add to that, Blair? Um, probably not. A bit. No, no, Nick. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so it, the other interesting thing that you raised there, Jason, is uh, whether or not this is the most effective mechanism for the ATO simply biting down. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, I guess you know. I, I, there's a whole lot of challenges there for the ATO and how they go about those decision processes. But um, but leave, leaving that aside, you, you would say that, it, uh, well, what I want to, okay, so now imagine that a lot, as I say, a lot of our, our audience are commercial finance brokers um, and they get the phone call from their client, listen, I need to, I need some, to raise some money against against my house or against the business, you know, my equipment or whatever it might be. And, uh, and, and you know, the, the broker says, well, what that's for? Well, I've got this uh, $300,000 tax debt or whatever it might be or, or, and, and other creditors that are blowing out. Um, now, what, I mean, what, I, I, the commercial finance broker, you know, they're, they're, they're number one. Uh, you know, a tool in the toolkit is refinance. But if the refinance is obviously beyond uh, the scope of the available assets or the creditworthiness of the client, um, you know, what are the things that the commercial finance broker should be asking his or herself um, before they sort of hand out Blair's phone number? I'll start with you, Jason. Well, I think it's getting an, an assessment of how this money is actually going to help fix the problem. You know, it, as the business owner, actually recognize what the problem is. So is this just a, a Band-Aid uh, over a problem which is going to come up again in another six months or 12 months? Or have they actually accepted what the problem is and they need this to actually try and get over the hump? Um, so, I mean, that's one of the big things with small business people that, you know, they're, they're focused on the business of making widgets, not the <laughs> business of widget making. Uh, so they don't have that appreciation of how to properly manage their costs and, and they just need some some good earlier advice to help uh, address those problems at an early stage so that, I mean, in a sense, sorry, Blair, but ideally they don't need to call Blair because they yeah. don't end up in an insolvency situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I, I, you know, a few cases that cross my desk too often is where the pre-insolvency advisor uh, is sort of driving the whole process. And the whole process just seems to be uh, obliterate the tax debt. And without saying, well, why is the business in this situation in the first place? You know, is it making red widgets when the market's asking for blue widgets? You know, is it using manual labor to make the red widgets when maybe they should look at automating? Well, whatever the, you know, yeah. whatever the case may be. Um, I, you know, now, that, now obviously there's, a, there's some good pre-insolvency advisors who are using their networks to bring in other people to solve those problems. But yeah, in America, they call, they go chapter 11 and they call it chapter 22 when the thing goes in again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so any any comments on that, Jason? Before we 
Uh, well, it's, it's interesting you raised the, the phenomenon of repeat insolvencies in the US. Of course, you can't have that with an SBR or indeed a simple simplified liquidation. So once you've gone into the process, you can't use it again for another seven years. And if you've got <laughs> someone who's been a director of a company that's gone in, then any other companies that they're a director on also can't use it for a period of uh, seven years. Um, so that, that deals with the, the repeat insolvency. But I'd also say I, th I think the tax office is doing a good job, at least insofar as insolvency practitioners tell me about their discussions with the tax office, that if the substance of the restructuring plan through the SBR is a trade-on situation and a payment out of the, a percentage of uh, trade-on revenues, then they want to see more detailed information. They want to see more realistic cash flow projections into the future. So I think that that is a good step. Uh, so they're not just taking it blindly on the faith of whatever the director says is going to happen. Uh, but certainly with the pre-insolvency advisors, I mean, this has been an issue for many years. Uh, we've been lobbying the government, several governments now for many years, that there needs to be a bit more regulation in this space. The review of the safe harbour reforms that we had a couple of years ago also recommended that the government look at some further regulation about who can be a safe harbour advisor. Uh, so I think that is something that, that we should see more work being done by government on to provide greater clarity for business people. Now, one of the suggestions that's out there in the market, the Small Business Ombud made this in a, a review report back in 2020, was that maybe there should be, for example, a, a small business uh, kind of ad advisory voucher that they can use to go off and get some advice to help them before they end up in, in financial dire straits. And that, that idea is something certainly that I would support. So how would uh, how would that work? A voucher, oh, like a voucher to cover the costs? Are you saying? Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. might be five thousand, ten thousand, and they could go off and basically get a business health check. Yeah, uh, yeah. Before things get too bad. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. Uh, we'll get to safe harbour uh, in a minute, um, but but uh, what what are your thoughts there, Blair? I mean, uh, well, well. Firstly, I just like to comment on Jason's comment about the ATO. Yes, I'm certainly seeing the ATO uh, uh, acting as bankers to some extent because that's what they are. I mean, they've got a they've got a thirty six billion dollar uh, bank loan book, is what it is. So yes, they are asking for forecasts and. Uh, and um, appraising these things as, uh, as if they're lending money, which uh, they effectively are. I tell people that the ATO are my biggest competitors and people laugh, but I'm not joking. I mean, they are my biggest competitors. Um, what, what, any thoughts uh, to add, Blair, before we move on to Safe Harbour? Well, I think, that, I think the ATO is conscious of uh, the, 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 the situation that SBRs are going to have a limited number of creditors as a general rule, and, and that they're they, that they're aware that they're um, uh, pre predominantly going to be the majority of majority creditor in the majority of cases. So I agree with you in that sense that they have at least for, formulated it appears a, a policy to deal with these things because uh, and that actually. It actually, and they're in some senses, they're actually asking for more than the law actually requires, because they actually they want a copy of the restructuring proposal before it goes to creditors. They want a draft of it, um, right. and that, strictly speaking, uh, the law doesn't. They're a creditor. The law doesn't say they're entitled to that. But strictly speaking, if you want, if they're the majority creditor commercially, you've got to get them on site. I guess there's uh, uh, politics versus, yeah. Yeah, and like that can be probably contrasted with um, 
partic you know, in the particularly uh, in the early days of VAs, it really wasn't clear what um, the policy of the ATO with respect to um, deeds was, aside from a blanket refusal. Um, and you, you, on the on the rare occasion, you might see them approve a proposal which may not necessarily have had the greatest hopes of succeeding, but they'd approve it because of, as you say, the political, it may be a rural business or something like that, or a rural-related business. So that, that sort of did leak into some of the decision-making. And let, let's face it, the ATO is a huge organisation. You're not going to necessarily see consistency. You don't even see necessarily consistency of who comes up on their radar. But I mean, look, yeah. um, the fact that they have a the fact they've got a policy for dealing with these things is um, is, is a positive sign. And the other, I guess the thing about it is, you know, that that report that Jason alluded to, you know, the dividends that have come, and admittedly that was a small sample size. The dividends that are coming out of these things, they're not. It's not necessarily sheep stations. They're, we're talking talking about the majority of the dividends possibly a less than 30 cents in the dollar. But that kind of shows you what the the uh, other option, the result of the other option being liquidation would be there, there'd be nothing. So well, to be honest, uh, yeah, in, my, yeah, in my experience, 30 cents in the dollar is a pretty good outcome for the ATO. So, yeah. uh, so yeah. there's that. And, and I would add that whilst we, you know, whilst it appears that the ATO is being very generous when it comes to SBRs, they, they're certainly, I've certainly seen them be very savage um, on on VAs and uh, and basically bouncing, you know, bouncing uh, lawyers out of court when they're when they're trying to get a little bit too cheeky from the ATO's point of view. I do want to move on to safe harbour. So, um, Jason, let let me give you my one minute understanding of uh, of safe harbour, and then if you tell me uh, if I've got it right. Um, so so. So, and I'll give an example. Um, uh, finance brokers, finance brokers work very closely with uh, with their clients, obviously. And you might have a, a business that's turning over, let's say, thirty million dollars a year. So it's a, it's at the bigger end of small business, and it's big enough to have um, some uh, non-executive directors. And uh, the owner of the business goes to the finance broker. You know, because of your expertise in raising capital, I'd really like you to join my board as a um, as a director. And uh, the commercial finance broker looks at it and goes, you know, this business is in a little bit of distress. Um, whilst I want to help this guy out, I'm not really getting a big, uh, you know, he might be offering me 20 grand a year to be on the board. It's not worth risking my house uh, in the event this thing goes into insolvent trading. And so maybe we should put this thing into a safe harbour before I agree to, to add my expertise. Is that what it is? And uh, have, are there other applications? No, it, it's just designed to provide greater comfort for directors that if there are signs of financial distress, if they, they might suspect that the company could be insolvent, that uh, as long as they are taking steps to you know get some good advice, to develop a plan that's going to result in a better outcome for the company, that they're not going to be exposed to insolvent trading liability, at least for that period. So one risk for, for the director, not for your finance broker who's just joining the board, but for the existing directors is perhaps they leave it too late before they actually start taking the, the steps to try and, and uh, engage the safe harbour. You've also got the uh, ATO uh, filing requirements that you've got to have your lodgements up to date, although not the tax payments. You've still got your employee entitlements 
that you have to have uh, up to date as well. So the same, pretty pretty same uh, preconditions for the SBR, with the exception of that one million dollar ceiling, which is only in the SBR. So, so there are some boxes that need to be ticked. Um, yep. but, but, but the point, I guess, from a commercial finance broker's point of view, again, they might see a business that's in a little bit of distress, mm -hmm. and uh, they might say to the directors, "Listen, um, you, you, you may want, you know, forget about it's. You know, I'm not a director as the finance broker, but you know, you may want to consider um, uh, looking at safe harbour to protect your personal assets, uh, so mm -hmm. that you can actually uh, try and save the business. Because one of the problems is that." I, I, as I understand it, was that directors, if they think the business is insolvent, strictly speaking, they should be putting it into voluntary administration. But if it's yeah. in a grey area, they can at least take the protection so they're not going to get sued for insolvent trading. That, that's 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 the way you uh, it works. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, when, I'll stay with you, Jason. When 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 Safe Harbour first came out. I remember seeing marketing material. I can't remember if it was insolvency firms or from uh, might have been from uh, legal practitioners, you know, insolvency lawyers. And I remember getting this big double fold out chart, and uh, it, it had you know boxes and arrows, and it had uh, it had sort of safe harbour on the left, and then then there was arrows, and basically it was all it was sort of seen as a step one before you go into administration. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, is that the intention, or is that just uh, that's that's how it's supposed to work? I'm not sure that that's the intention, but neither would I say that that's an abuse. Um, I mean, as we know, many of these businesses have, have been in trouble for some time. So it's not as if everything's fine and then all of a sudden they're on the brink of insolvency. That can happen in some cases, I guess. Uh, so th there's been issues for a while. And if you can use a safe harbour period just to try and work out what your options are and work out a plan, and maybe that plan involves going into voluntary administration because... There's, there's some benefit of doing that. You might be able to uh, compromise a landlord, for example, or, or as we've been discussing, possibly compromise a tax debt, deal with the kind of the bad part of the business and save the good part of the business. But in some cases, a safe harbour will lead to a liquidation. So I think the way it's being used, certainly by safe harbour advisors that I speak to and company directors that I speak to, it's being used in a way to try and provide a better outcome, whether that's using a VA, a liquidation, or, or ideally, the business is saved. It keeps on trading. No one except for the insiders is any any the wiser. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll come back to that. I just want to give Blair a chance to tell me what, uh, as a practitioner, obviously you're, uh, you know, Hall Chadwick's a big national firm, uh, so you must get a few of these things crossing your desk. Yeah, well, yeah you do. Um, the, re the reality of it is it is, uh, uh, it's probably... It's probably it's probably for the big end of town, you know, large 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 companies and large public companies, because they're the ones that, are, you know, it's not it's it's not for every it's not for every business, um, you know, directors of those companies they don't just wander in and just sign up a VA or an SBA or, or an SBR, uh, well they can't sign up an SBR, but it's um, the clear it's clear the process gets used. It's just not um, it's hard to quantify how much it gets used. But it's likely, you know, some of these large companies that you see going down and, and taking up the headlines in the business business pages, they're no they're no doubt been subject to some form of um, uh, safe harbour advice in conjunction with an informal workout for a period of time. And like, it's obviously, uh, and when I say it's the large companies, they're the ones who can afford it. 
and afford the advisors and, uh, and they've got the horsepower to get through the other side um, in terms of resources or potentially get, have the horsepower to get through the other side. I guess part of the part of the safe harbour process, of course, is uh, being able to having a plan. Um, I, I guess not, but obviously it's not a plan in the sense of, of the SBR plan. Uh, I guess interestingly, I suppose at the small end of town there's SBR, and at the big end of town there's safe harbour. I guess the middle the middle market is still uh, only really has voluntary administration. One of the things, um, Jason, that 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 um, Blair said is we don't really know. There's no safe harbours aren't officially recorded anywhere and that's obviously one of the advantages of them is yep. that you don't have to tell the whole world uh you know what, what your problems are behind closed doors uh i remember when they first came out there was people saying oh you know you should you, should, you know the ato should know whoever should know but of course that's that's one of the whole points of this of this thing um i mean is there any research done are you able to say that it is you mentioned before you think it's or you intimated that it's successful do, do we know do we have any stats at all so the only studies that I've seen on the safe harbour were conducted out of Melbourne Law School uh, back in 2020. So that's three years after safe harbour came in. So uh, Professor Ian Ramsey and uh, Stacey Steele uh, down in Melbourne uh, did a study. They surveyed reader members uh, and they got a, a couple of hundred uh, responses. And what that showed was that the safe harbour work, at least in, in 2020, was not taking up a very large portion of those uh, respondents' uh, practices. So there was fairly low levels of engagement. You know, they estimated that uh, the respondents uh, were saying less than 20% of their business was uh, involved in safe harbour. And most practitioners at that stage had only done less than five safe harbours. Most of them had only done one or two safe harbours. Uh, so, I mean, their, their view was that, yes, it was serving a purpose. It was successful in that sense. Um, I don't think we should judge safe harbour necessarily on the numbers of safe harbours. Uh, or indeed on the numbers of companies using safe harbours that avoid some form of external administration, because it, you might need a formal external administration like a VA docker to actually deal with the, the problem that the business has and then hopefully have a, a more successful, healthier company emerge from it. So no, there, there are no statistics. The, the government review, I mean, it was an independent review commissioned by Commonwealth Treasury uh, back in uh, 2021, they uh, engaged a, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of insolvency firms, professional advisory firms, lawyers. Um, I spoke to them, some other academics spoke to them, uh, and they said, yes, it, it does appear to be successful. It does seem to be a useful tool in the toolbox. And certainly talking to practitioners during COVID and now after COVID, uh, they tell me that they are doing a lot more safe harbour work. Uh, so yeah, I think we would say it's successful. Now, could it be improved? It could be improved. It could be a little bit more flexible. There could be a bit more certainty. ASIC, I think, would do well to issue a regulatory guide. Uh, I think that we could register small business advisors, uh, the so-called safe harbour masters. That might deal with some of the um, the uh, untrustworthy advisors that ASIC and AFSA have been looking at. So I think we could improve it, but I think overall it is a success. And And the... I, I mean, Blair mentioned that uh, he thought it was possibly an expensive process. I know that there's a lot of lawyers, well, I've spoken to lawyers that that uh, seem to get a fair bit of safe harbour crossing their desk. So mm -hmm. that uh, raises the question, is, is a lot of this stuff lawyer-led rather than accountant-led, although obviously a part of it you're supposed to have a financial plan that shows uh, how you get out of it. When, when, so safe harbour... It is there to protect the directors so that they can then take, you know, try and save the business. 
uh, yep. as opposed to take the personal risk. I remember when Safe Harbour first came out, people were saying, look, it's a bit, we really don't know how this thing's going to play out. We're going to need to wait until we see the court cases. Mm-hmm. Um, have there been court cases? So there have only been two cases that have had any discussion about Safe Harbour. Uh, one was a very large matter, uh, and the discussion of Safe Harbour wasn't so much whether the Safe Harbour was effective, but it was merely discussing the period of Safe Harbour before which a company went into voluntary administration. And that was quite, I think it was a large mining company and Freehills were the the Safe Harbour advisors in that particular matter. And there's a lot of discussion about what sort of documentation you might have in place and the relationship between the directors and the company, very much a big end of town matter. The other case, which I've actually written an article on, was a case down in Victoria, which was a pandemic case, a, a small business running two cafes in Melbourne, affected by the, the shut lockdowns in uh, Melbourne, and they tried to use a safe harbour to deal with the last basically four years of tax debts, uh, which was never going to work. Uh, they ha- hadn't made a, a tax return in five years, so they weren't eligible for safe harbour. Most of the debts were pre-safe harbour debts anyway, uh, and also there was no plan. Uh, they had engaged an external advisor, but the external advisor was only engaged for the purposes of defending an ATO winding up application. And so th- there was no plan. Uh, in fact, this so, business had no records. They didn't have a computer. Right. Okay. So it sounds like an, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit of an abusive process there, but uh, or an attempted abusive process. So, so that it has been. It ha- the courts have had a say on what has to, what boxes have to be ticked in respect of there being a safe harbour. But no one, no one's, for example, tried to uh, sue a director for insolvent trading, uh, trying to challenge their protection for argument's sake in, in terms of safe harbour no well this one victorian case that the liquidated was suing the director for insolvent trading uh which was easily proved the company had been insolvent for years uh and the director who i think was self-represented then obviously had done some googling and found out about this right. safe harbor and had raised the safe harbor but it was so clearly not applicable and the judge used it as an opportunity to say Here's all the reasons why you can't use a safe harbour. Right, 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 right. Okay, so uh, Dr. Google um, didn't, yeah. didn't quite uh, come up yeah, with that. That's the right how they found their external advisor as well. Right, uh, so, uh, right. Well known in a particular state in Australia, you know, will help you avoid your ATO debts. Right, right. Okay. Well, that narrows it down to two or three people, but we won't, we won't, uh, we won't, we won't go there. Um, uh, okay. Uh, n- now, yeah. So, so I guess uh, you know we're sort of coming coming to the end of our time. So I'm just thinking again of the commercial finance broker that's sitting there with their client. They've got the financials in front of them. Now, if it's a if it's a small business, you know, there's a couple of boxes that you know things that they can look out for obviously if the total debt's less than a million dollars uh but i guess the main thing is that they identify that potentially say uh, small business restructuring is available to the small business and they should really be picking up the phone to someone like blair to uh to maybe uh, bounce ideas or to see if uh you know what, what 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 the right professional advice might be um and then if it is a a larger business uh where there's directors and potentially professional directors as well who who aren't necessarily shareholders in the business, and they might want to uh, discuss uh, discuss safe harbour. And both of these things seem to uh, seem to be successful at the moment. Uh, what 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 would you what what would you change? Uh, what 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 would you recommend changes in terms of safe harbour, Jason? What what yeah? What what do you think could make it better and maybe more accessible? I think providing more guidance. You know, in some ways, the safe harbour 
could be considered a success because we haven't had any significant case law. You know, it does seem right. to be working. People are using it. It's not getting challenged in court. So maybe that is a success. And we could say that more broadly about the, the safe harbour that operates in relation to general director's duties, the duty of care and the business judgment rule. You know, there's hardly any cases on the business judgment rule. Uh, so, so one way of looking at that is it's a tremendous success. People aren't getting sued if this, this could be raised as a defence. So in the absence of that guidance from the court, I think we, we should have more regulatory guidance. And this is something that in some areas, ASIC is very keen to get on the front foot and say, well, this is how we think fundraising should operate. And this is how we think conflicts of interest should operate. And this, you know, they'll give you lots of guidance on those things, but come to director's duties and safe harbour. And ASIC's approach seems to be, well, we're not lawyers, you know, we're not here to tell you what the law is. Go and get your own legal advice. So I think if ASIC released a regulatory guide which set out, you know, here are the things that you should be looking for. Here are the things that make a good, appropriately qualified entity. If we had a register of those qualified advisors, I think that would go a long way, particularly with insurance and you know professional standards. Um, so providing some further guidance, I think, would improve it. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, by way of uh, wrapping up, Blair, uh, any any sort of messages for uh, commercial finance brokers coming into 2024? Obviously, uh, whether or not it's 30 billion, 36 billion, or 40 billion dollars worth of tax debt, there's a lot of uh, pressure there. Um, what's what's your advice to a, to a commercial finance broker that as they as they look at their clients, particularly the ones that are picking up the phone with working capital issues? Well, I suppose the thing about the, the thing about it is is it's human nature. Yeah, yeah. Insolvency, insolvency practitioners lo love love to tell people the earlier you uh, take action about financial distress, the um, the uh, more options you have. But it's human nature. The reality of it is, uh, you know, calling me calling an insolvency practitioner such as myself up is the last step on the road after all other options have been exhausted, like. Um, Refinance, like attempting to sell components of the business or sell selling surplus assets, all those all those sorts of things. So I guess with that in mind, um, when a uh, when a when a client approaches a finance broker with clear evidence of financial distress, it's probably an idea to uh, at that point um, identify what options are actually available to the, the particular client, whether it be safe harbour, whether it be, um, whether it be even SBR, but to, to, to actually identify a plan um, at that point, and then in terms of how you're gonna get out, how the client's gonna get out of distress. Um, and then monitoring that plan, you know, you give yourself, well, uh, for instance, you give yourself two months to and and make milestones sort of business in terms of and the client needs to make milestones or in terms of how they're going to go about resurrecting their business because not having a plan does lead to sub suboptimal results and obviously having a plan and not implementing it and not monitoring it is going to end up with uh, you know somebody knock on knocking on the doorstep of a liquidator and um, ending up in a liquidator's in-tray and there won't, there won't be a good result for uh, either the company or potentially the personal position of the directors. So I think that, and this is probably goes back to what you were saying before, um, it's not so much stigma 
it's a bit of, it's a bit of, it's a bit about directors having a, an idea of losing control um, with these right. things. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's a big fear. I, I guess uh, yeah. I mean, the more you let it go, the less resources are in the business. The less you know, the, the, the more suppliers have stopped supply, the more customers have received diminished quality of service or goods because of the lack of resources and the fewer options are available to the business. Jason, any any closing comments from yourself? Oh, I, I certainly support everything uh, Blair just said. There's a nice little quote in the, um, the explanatory memorandum that introduces Safe Harbour, which Treasury put together and it said, hope is not a plan. Uh, so it's it's really making sure that the the business person is actually coming to grips with what the fundamental problems are, and the reality is not every business should be saved. Not every business is economical, uh, yeah. and so trying to make that assessment of well, what is the problem and how are we going to fix it? What's the plan? Where do we need to get some advice? And and maybe it is recommending that some of those clients go off and get a kind of business health checkup. And that includes things like making sure all your contracts are, are in place, making sure you understand the terms of your, your financial documents and your leases and your, your PPSR registrations and these types of things, uh, where you've got businesses that are using trust, making sure that people understand actually, you know, how this business is supposed to operate legally so that if they do continue to go into financial distress, then they have a better appreciation of what their options are. And I mean, that's good for the financier as well. And as you say, I mean, for some people, it's uh, it should be, listen, get out of business, save your house and get a job, um, yeah. unfortunately. As you say, I think uh, uh, Peter Drucker, who... Uh, Management guru. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Now, 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 Blair might uh, feign being too young and uh, not remembering Peter Drucker, but I think that uh, he did make the comment that uh, most turnarounds don't. So you do have to get in early to, to, to not be one of the stats. All right, gentlemen, thank you very, very much. Um, uh, Blair Pleach, partner at Hall Chadwick, and uh, Dr., uh, Professor Jason Harris uh, from the University of Sydney. Very grateful to you both. Take it easy. Thanks very Cheers. much, Nick. Cheers. Thanks, Bye -bye. Nick. Thanks, Blair.